The lead character in the film version of The Wall was played by Bob Geldof, who at the time was lead singer for the Boomtown Rats. Three years later, he was the man who organized Live Aid. Roger Waters remembers how Geldof was cast. Alan suggested him, and I said, yeah, good idea, great idea, see if he's interested. And so he called him up, and he wasn't interested, but he decided to do it anyway. In fact, there's a very funny story. He um, was asked to do it, and he was going to do some gigs on the continent, and he went with Fokno Kelly, who was his manager at the time, I don't know, maybe he still is, to the airport, and he was going, I've been asked to do this Pink Floyd bloody war thing, what a load of crap, and... And Faulkner was trying to persuade him that it would be a good career move and da-da-da, bloody bloody blah and da-da-da-da. And none of this would ever have come to light except that my brother was the cab driver. I laid this on Geldof later at the time. He could not believe it, quite rightly, because what an incredible coincidence. It was my brother, John. So anyway, at least Bob and I never had any kind of... Um, you know, there was never any pussyfooting about what he thought about Pink Floyd and the music and so on and so forth, because he was extremely scathing about the whole thing. And I never tried to persuade him differently. I'm not going to waste my education on Geldof trying to explain the wall to him. He understands, he just doesn't realise he understands. There's one man in the world who understands, it's got to be Geldof. Bless him. Seven of Film Gold, and as with the last podcast, I'm joined by two collaborators today, and we have the return of Jay Crash, who you may remember from the first episode, the intro episode, and then we also did Marathon Man together. How are you, mate? Doing well. Thanks for having me again. And um, making his podcast debut, I think we have uh, my old friend uh, Filippo. How are you, mate? Hi, Anthony. Yeah, I'm well. This is my first podcast. You're right. Thanks for having me as well. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I'm on a kind of a mission to invite lots of friends and family and try and make them slightly famous, even though I'm not slightly <laughs> famous myself. But I had my niece on for episode five. We did the social network. It was kind of a compromise. Uh, I wanted to do Citizen Kane. She wanted to do Marvel. So we met somewhere in the middle, you know. <laughs> that was kind of fun. I listened to part of that, but I admittedly have never seen that film so i mm. you, you guys were kind of getting into it and i thought I, I better get in there and watch it and then yeah. listen to this we found like we didn't really talk about the film for that long we actually found ourselves talking about social media because she's young she's mm. like 23 so she's got a handle on like all the especially like the dark side of social media you know anyway that was a previous episode well, so, um, yeah, I guess the audience knows uh, Jay Crush a little bit, but Filippo, can you just introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Filippo. I'm originally Italian, but I grew up in South Africa and uh, now I live in Spain. And uh, I'm an artist. I'm a painter and a musician, self-taught musician. Three musos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah cool. Can't be bad. Nice. And we also got, for the audience, we've got a mix of accents. So we got posh English. West Coast Americans, right? California. Yes, California. West American. And then uh, South African. There oh. you go. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. 
I'll just go through like uh, some of the particulars of this film. So it was obviously directed by Alan Parker, who's an English fella. I've seen a couple of his films. Midnight Express is a famous one from the late mm. 70s. Pretty sure I saw Fame when I was a kid, but he's very eclectic. Oh, he fame. did Fame as well. He did Fame, yeah. He, he, get, he went from Midnight Express to Fame to this film to Mississippi Burning, which is about... Oh, I've seen that. Good yeah. Film. It's a good, good film. Good film, yeah. 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 And then he made The Commitments, which is another musical. Oh, that's... Hmm. Great film as well. The Commitments yeah. was really, really good. So he made Evita with Madonna, but I didn't see that. But I haven't seen anything since. Uh-huh. Can we just talk about maybe our, our histories with this film? And maybe also with the Floyd uh, album, The Wall, as well. So my history of this film actually involves you, uh, Filippo, because you and I met oh. in 2006. We were both working in Rome for this horrendous language school. <laughs> really terrible school and you were living in a place called Tor Vianica, which is near Rome yeah. on the beach weren't you yeah and uh, you yeah. and I met and we played a bit of music drank a few beers etc won't go uh-huh. into all the other details and, uh, <laughs> I can't remember if we saw this film together but we definitely talked about it a lot I watched it a couple of times and I was just blown away so uh Jay Crush how about mm. you when did you first see the film and how many times would you say you've seen it I think I first saw the film when I was probably a teenager, 15, 16 is mm. kind of when I started expanding mm. musically. And you know, I was kind of a punk rock kind of kid in my early teens. That was all I listened to. Mm. Then I started discovering uh, you know, a whole world out there. And I remember uh, mm. hearing, oh, yeah, they have a movie for that. And just, just <laughs> some guys, we just... Uh, picked it up and watched it and it's that really got me into the record i think i saw the film Mm -hmm. first i was getting into pink floyd a little bit but then i really dove into the wall and we talk about films all the time and what are our top films i i think the wall is probably my favorite pink floyd record and one of my favorite albums of all time wow awesome Mm -hmm. all right Filippo, how about you Oh, I'll just repeat what Jay Crash said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I also saw the film before I heard the record. Mm. You know, I think the film got me interested. I started watching it when I was in university, so probably in my 20s, because I also mm. come from a rock, metal, punk uh, background, and then yeah. I discovered all this other rock, fantastic music. Yeah, I think it's my favorite Pink Floyd record. And, you know, it's also one of my favorite albums of all time. Just the songwriting and the production is, is incredible. And, and then mm-hmm. you've got the film to go with it. That's just amazing. You know, with animation, it's just everything. We'll get you know. to the animation because I want someone to try and tell me what's going on with that. <laughs> uh, I was probably the other way around. I, th- I think I'd heard a lot of Pink Floyd. And actually, I remember because I was listening to The Wall and I kept hearing this voice going like, how can you have your pudding if you don't eat your meat? <laughs> this amazing Scottish accent. I was like, where's that come from? And like, so I, I probably School got master. to the film. Yeah, I probably got to the film later than the album, I'm pretty sure. Just a couple of other things about the film. The animations were done by a fellow called Gerald Scarf. He's like a satirical cartoonist. He, he worked for some of the national newspapers in England. And he worked for a, a newspaper called Private Eye, which is like a full-on satirical exposing corruption in the government kind of thing and uh i think political cartoons are fantastic because it's a brilliant way of lampooning 
politicians because you exaggerate all their features. If you remember Tony Blair, our wonderful ex-Prime Minister, whenever he's in cartoons, he's always got like a massive smile and like huge sticking out ears. <laughs> And obviously, you know, there's quite a few politicians who are a little bit overweight. And, uh, you know, I'm not fat shaming here, but you can kind of really show that with a gluttony, you know, with a with a good mm. cartoon caricature. So <laughs> and then, of course, you've got Roger Waters and not surprisingly, Alan Parker, Gerald Scarf and Roger Waters. They did have a few disagreements because you've got these three mm. highly creative guys, you know, not surprising. But anyway, I think a lot of this film quite a few things are about Sid Barrett. So are you guys familiar with the Sid Barrett era of Floyd? And what do you think about it compared to the other Floyd? Personally, I prefer all the Pink Floyd after Sid Barrett. A lot of people like Sid Barrett and mm. uh, that era of Pink Floyd. But personally, it's I, I prefer the after Sid Barrett. Right, right. Jay Crush? I agree. Of course, I have gone back through the Sid Barrett stuff. I think that Pink Floyd, in my humble opinion, expanded musically when Gilmore came on board. I think he, he was probably the most talented musician out of the group. Uh, that's not taking anything away from Richard Wright or Mason or Waters. I mean, they were all fantastic musicians, but the early Floyd stuff, it's cool. It's really different than what they evolved into with sort of this massive production concepts but you know a lot of other artists were doing concept type things you know you had tommy you had you know the beatles made hard days night and and kind of put music that sort of rock music and and that era into actually film and they kind of sound garagey to me in the beginning. They're experimental, but I think that they mm. sharpened their experimental edge and still brought that, but their range was greater when Gilmore came on. Yeah. That's my opinion. Actually, Barrett's two solo albums are quite interesting. They're almost mm. along the lines of uh, oh. Dan. Have you guys heard of Daniel Johnston? Yeah. Really low high. Yeah. Uh huh. There's a documentary. I heard some of his. Yeah, I saw the documentaries. The, the Devil and Daniel Johnson. But anyway, like the, the Barrett stuff here, yeah, it's very. In fact, a couple of members of Pink Floyd helped him out with that. It's very lo fi. Mm. It's very desolate. You know, you can really hear it's a guy who's having like some kind of serious breakdown or is already kind of in the stratosphere, you know, somewhere else. Pink Floyd was mm. weird because they had three eras with three different leaders. So obviously Sid Barrett was the main guy at the beginnings, the singer, songwriter, guitarist. And then they had a democratic period. And then Roger Waters started with his authoritarian, uh, some might say fascist, but we'll get to that, style of <laughs> And then he left in 85. And then from what I heard, he wanted the Pink Floyd name to be retired and like, and David Gilmour says, uh, well, actually, no, we'll just carry on. You can leave if you want. Mm -hmm. We'll carry on. So then they had another era with Dave Gilmour as a leader. So it's a pretty interesting history. And, you know, they started off as kind of an R&B band. And then they were a bit garagey. I agree with you. And psychedelic, prog, and then all sorts. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the background of this film and the background of the album, there was a concert in Montreal, I believe, in 1977, you may have heard of this, where Roger Waters spat on one of the fans. They were mm -hmm. in a huge stadium. I they, remember hearing that story. 
Yeah, they, they hated Stadium Rock. You know, it wasn't what they mm-hmm. wanted to do at all. But obviously, you know, they were getting all the riches. And obviously, there's loads of stuff in this film about fame and everything. And uh, Roger Waters spotted a guy who looked like he was having a really good time. And <laughs> this is a Roger Waters' own words. And he didn't like it. He thought, this is bullshit. You know, it's big stadium. Mm-hmm. Why is this guy enjoying it? You know, I'm not enjoying it. He's fat on him. And, yeah. and of course, he had the idea of erecting a wall. Yeah, and highly symbolic, of course. And the production of the film that we're going to talk about today, I just briefly, just on the name of the film, it's officially called Pink Floyd The Wall, which is a bit Mm -hmm. misleading because you might think that it's going to have Pink Floyd. Obviously, it's got their music, but the lead character Mm -hmm. is called Pink Floyd because you hear Mm -hmm. when he's a kid, his friend's going, Oi, Pinky! When he's putting putting Mm -hmm. the bullet on the train tracks, and then you hear Mr. Does he say Pinky? Or I always thought it was. Pinkhead, Pinkhead. No, it's definitely, oi, Pinky, with a Cockney accent. Yeah, okay. You know, yeah. Yeah. Right. Pinky, get off the line. Get off the line. That's the train's good. coming. Yeah. 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 Good accent, I like that, yeah. Oi, Pinky. Yeah, so this was a production, like I say, it was a kind of a triumvirate of Alan Parker, Gerald Scarf, and Roger Waters. And uh, one thing I saw, like, for all the skinhead parts, you know, the Nazi stuff, mm. they used real skinheads. Oh, I heard that. The as bits well. where they're like attacking, you know, raping women and stuff. And they're really worried because, you know, the skinheads were mm. kind of getting into it. Not saying that anyone got assaulted, but they had to like mm. really. Uh... And a bit of useless trivia they filmed that at the same gas works where Kubrick filmed Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right. Yeah, I hope I haven't burst anyone's bubble who didn't know that. But Full Metal Jacket, the second part, was all filmed in a gas works in East London because Stanley mm. Kubrick <laughs> didn't want to travel to you know the Philippines or Thailand or wherever they normally film Vietnam films. There's some scenes in the, the wall with uh, like dunes. There's some dunes. Mm-hmm. Was that the gas works as well? I'm not sure. I'm thinking it was the Nazi stuff. Yeah, the Nazi rallies. Oh, okay, yeah. Not sure where they film the interiors. Should have looked that up. <laughs> as far as the plot, I mean, the director, Alan Parker, said the plot is a burned-out rock star thinking back to his life, you know, losing his mm. father in the war. But I think the director's probably obligated to give some sort of narrative because, to me, this is so sprawling, like it's all over the place, you know? Mm. I love it. But <laughs> would you say there's a plot going on here? Is Is there any kind of narrative arc we can follow or not? I think it is definitely uh, a story of, you know, the character, but the wall itself is such a massive concept and it's one that everybody can relate to socially because of the society's impact on the individual. And the character just becomes the catalyst for the bigger themes that come in and it's, mm-hmm. it's relatable to an extent as it goes through the character's life. Yeah. Actually, the film Annie Hall, this is a weird kind of uh, comparison. (laughs) Annie Hall, the Woody (laughs) Allen film, they do this interesting thing where towards the end of the film, they actually flash back to earlier scenes in the film, which is a really really difficult thing to pull off. And they do it here as well. Mm -hmm. Like a flash Mm -hmm. of images near the beginning of the film. And then in the second half of the film, you flash back to stuff that was like 10 minutes earlier. It's really interesting how they get away with that. That must be, I guess, you know, when you've got an editor who knows what he's doing. I was going to say that I think the concept of that is that this is what's going on in the human brain on Mm -hmm. sort of a daily basis. And yeah, there's these extremes of 
you know, mental anguish you can go in, but there's also just daily, you're thinking back, oh, I, when mm. I was a kid here or, th- or this, oh, I remember you, these memories flash into your mind. Mm. And so it's bouncing around, you know, one second he's a, he's a kid and then he's pink, you know, adult pink sitting in the chair and then he moves into this kid, sit, the kid sitting into the chair. It's just this interweaving of, time sequences that that's how memories work they just come in and come out and they spark these uh feelings and like you said the editing in this was amazing oh, uh, every paying so much attention every detail and always think with a director yeah. jesus what a headache that must be to even think yeah. about putting all this together i mean some bits you get like 20 30 images in seconds you know i agree uh, it's like a trip through the guy's brain because mm. um there's some weird scenes like the transition between scenes i noticed i didn't notice this when i watched it years ago but mm. there's a scene where he sees the girl through the window of his or he's in his trailer you know that's it yeah, he's, he's in his trailer he sees the girl through the window then she then he like opens the door and looks at her you know stares at her and she comes over and she yeah. goes into his room, and then all of a sudden they in his in an apartment, you know, the scene where he's watching TV and she's like, Are you feeling okay? Yeah, and this is but he's in an apartment, you know. Yeah. And then there's actually a scene where he's looking out of the where you can see the you can see the view outside. It's I don't yeah. know if it's New York or but it's a city. Yeah. So that transition, then there's another transition I noticed. Uh when he's a child and he goes into the trenches and all of a sudden yeah. he's in a hospital and he finds himself as an adult like a mental hospital. But, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. Really, it's crazy. Uh, I, mean, I don't think you could possibly explain all of this really, you know, it's well, just, I think, it's just a sensory experience. You know, I was going to add to what Filippo said about him with the woman. There's definitely a relationship aspect so if you kind of look at it sociologically so to speak there's this you know relationship that he has with his mother that Mm. he has with his future wife but there's this theme in all the women and Filippo made me think of that other scene where he's sitting at his desk in his room when he's a kid and Mm. he sees the girl changing in the house across the street and he turns the light off and he's watching her but if you notice all the females have a distinct look to them. It's a, this whole stereotype of the women that he, you know, finds himself with or his yeah. type and that girl. Mm. And then he meets his wife. And then even the girl in the scene you were talking about yeah, when he steps out of the trailer, the groupie the has groupie. those characteristics of all those women in his life. And, you know, so that was an interesting point. You know, that they intercut him as a kid watching a, a ginger-haired girl from a window, and then you see him as an adult with a ginger-haired wife. Like, some would say, oh, that's too obvious. I mean, it didn't bother me in the slightest, you know. And then you've got some really direct imagery, like he, as a kid he's, he's snuggling in his mother's bed, and then as an adult, you know, he's got the blanket mm. over him, you know? Yeah. In a oh. fetal position on in the bed. He's, I don't know, people that critique it you know it say it's clunky i mean Mm. our minds are clunky 
life is clunky, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. we're all kind of bouncing around and, and, and it's like, it's confusion. That's kind of the point of the film is to mm. demonstrate like that, like if you're watching, you're like, why is it going back here? You know, if you're used to the sort of a linear way of looking at things, then you're going to watch the movie and it, you're going to be like, well, why is it doing all this stuff? But it's promoting that feeling and the visceral kind of feeling inside you of like, what is going on? Like yeah. the mothers have to, that's kind of the way our minds and operate. And I think it's very effective. I think especially like a traumatized mind, you know, I mean, he's got all this stuff going on, but uh Right. If you guys don't mind, I just want to describe. We're not going to go scene by scene because we'll be here for six months, I think, trying to work out <laughs> what all the imagery means. But I just want to describe to the listeners just the opening two or three minutes because what it is, it works as quite a nice sort of microcosm of the whole film. So basically you get this, uh, I think it's a Vera Lynn song. I don't, know, I don't know if you're familiar with Vera Lynn, but she was, a, she was like a middle-aged woman who used to sing to the troops. Most yeah. of them will meet again, which weirdly enough was used at the end of Dr. Strangelove when the nuclear bomb is detonated. <laughs> Such a brilliant, ironic use of it. Uh, awesome. Uh, Vera Lynn uh, died recently, I think, last year or two years ago. Yeah, last year. Maybe. Yeah. Prince Philip yeah. also died, but uh, who gives a fuck? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just being political for a second. Sorry. Anyway, yeah. So this opening scene. So, so the the camera's following this like carpeted floor, which I guess is a hotel. You've got the vacuum cleaner going, and then you cut to his father in a. I thought it was a trench, but I, I thought they only used trenches mm. as World War. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's lighting an oil lamp, and then. You hear that horrible sound of the bombs. He's cleaning his gun. And then you get the song, uh, When the Tigers Broke Free, which actually ended up on uh, the Pink Floyd album, The Final Cut, which I mm -hmm. call The Final Straw, because it was such a Roger Waters autobiographical album. I think that was the end of the band, really, in terms of him. Mm -hmm. And then you have Pink on a rugby pitch, which sort of symbolizes, you know, an upper-class private school. And then you have Pink... Bob Geldof with a cigarette burning down, which apparently was a Sid Barrett thing. Apparently he used to do that. You know, he was so high that, mm. or so sort of catatonic that he didn't notice the cigarette burning. Then you go back to the cleaner. She knocks on the door and then the chain of the door is combined mm -hmm. with like the kids bursting through this like <laughs> chain link fence. Again, like people would say, oh, it's too obvious, but I, I just think it's brilliant. And then it's intercut with this World War II battle. Then you've got cops dealing with rioting kids. <laughs> then you've got in the flesh, you've got the Nazi rally, and then Pink's father bombed in this in this enormous explosion. Like I couldn't believe how huge that explosion was. And then almost my favorite cut is the cut to his wife sleeping in a deck chair in the garden with Pink as a baby in the pram at the exact mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. that his father is dying thousands of miles away. She's in this country <clears throat> garden with the with the birds singing. You know, I just think mm -hmm. it was fantastic. Anyway, that's just the first few minutes. And in a way, it kind of serves as a summary of the film, you know. But uh, what do you think about Bob Geldof in this role? Filippo, what do you reckon? I actually liked I liked the way he sang some parts. Oh, yeah. You mean his acting or, or his Well, singing? both, yeah. He did sing in the flesh, didn't he? He was singing uh, So You Might mm -hmm. you hope, might Want to Go to the Show. That's him. But what about his acting? Sort of yeah. style, really. Yeah, I thought it was good, you know. I liked her. his... Uh, portrayal of a guy who slowly goes towards insanity. I thought it was pretty good. 
just yeah. his expression, his facial expression, where he's just kind of blank. You know, like Roger Waters said about Sid Barrett when uh, he started losing it, kind of yet, but his eyes were blank. What's the um, lyric? Black holes in the black holes, black holes in the sky. Nine on your crazy. So I thought he he pulled it off pretty good. Well, like his Sid Barrett impersonation, as well as when he becomes the dictator. I thought that was you know, a good performance. Yeah, Jay Crush would uh, I thought he was great. You know, he he was also a, a musical performer with the Boomtown Rats. And yeah. So he knew how to work a crowd and to be in a persona as a stage musician. I thought he just, he went off the hook when he did the <laughs> dictator parts. He was just perfectly animated. He obviously understood the record and the concept and just everything and he had a lot of he had good direction that probably helped him through the filming aspects yeah i mean you could say i guess it's minimalist but then you know he had to be in the pool of blood you know the swimming pool that was some quite physical stuff and then obviously trashes the hotel room he's got the nazi Mm -hmm. rally so it's not just him being Mm -hmm. catatonic but even with that bit you know you need the right person he had the look you know the unshaven bob Mm -hmm. geldof was famous I mean, the Boontown Rats, I don't, I, I've never met anyone who knows any songs beyond, I don't like Mondays and Rat Trap. <laughs> right. <laughs> please enlighten me. But of course, Bob Geldof now is so synonymous with Band Aid and Live Aid. You know, right. people almost mm-hmm. forget that he was actually a rock star, a musician. And he's also known for being mm-hmm. very scruffy. So he kind of probably worked and, mm-hmm. and, he, and he just had the right look in his eye. And obviously he, he was a rock star and he, he knew all about, you know, the shallow excesses of, rock stardom which is one of the themes of this film so yeah i think he did pretty mm. well was he in any other movies do you know that's a good question it definitely yeah. didn't before this yeah I, mm. i'm gonna say i don't think so actually no I, I haven't seen him in any other in i mean i've never seen him films. make any music as well after that either i don't know what he's been <laughs> doing apart from schmoozing with political leaders i don't know i honestly don't know what he's how he spends his day how does bob geldof spend his day listeners Right to the usual address. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, the themes of this film, I guess one of the obvious ones is loneliness. So we are obviously Pink loses his father. I was listening to a podcast today about this film just to see if there were any ideas I could steal. And uh, in fact, they weren't because all the stuff they said, I was kind of thinking already, although they said something interesting. They said that loneliness can get addictive. And uh, I think I've been guilty of this. You just indulge the loneliness. I think The Wall is just such a perfect album <laughs> to indulge in. You know? But what, what do we get about loneliness, do you think, in this film? I think the loneliness part, probably a lot, like you said, that uh, Roger Waters lost his father. I think it's quite autobiographical, probably. Because I know, I, I heard Sid Barrett also lost his father and they were they were quite good friends because they had a lot in common when they were young. I I don't know if they went to the same school. One of the interesting things is that Mm. Barrett was studying art and all the others were studying architecture. And a lot of people said that the later Floyd is quite architectural in the way that it's designed really well, you know. Anyway, that's another Uh story, sorry. Interesting. How's the loneliness shown here? I mean, being alone, yeah. Again, some would say it's a bit, it's too obvious. (laughs) A guy alone in a hotel room, but is there, are there any other sort of ways that they convey this theme? I think uh, in a lot of ways, there's an animation scene. Get the end, 
the trial, just before the trial, yeah. where he's like in a big, um, like the walls all around him. And also the fact that he's behind a wall, there's also a scene where he's banging against the wall. Yeah, and sliding down the wall as well, yeah. It's like he's, he's, uh, he's alone behind the wall. Yeah, and obviously uh, loads of scenes. He's alone in the mental hospital. He's alone in a cubicle. You know, loneliness and isolation, isolated with within his own mind and his own thought and his own experience. And I think that that's what makes the work itself so relatable. You know, I, I think that everybody can relate to that isolation that we feel where, you know, you never, uh, people tend to not express their true thoughts about a lot of things. We hold things inside and they end up having a toll on us physically, mentally, that impact just generally on your health and well-being that happens when you're isolated. And it takes a lot of different forms for different people, but it's very relatable and he lost his father at a young age, but ultimately through life, we lose people that are very close to us, regardless of your age, although it's certainly more impactful when you're younger. It's something that every human being goes through. Yeah, I mean, I think Roger Waters said the first half of the film is, is very autobiographical, all the childhood stuff. I mean, we'll get to uh, one of the, another one of the themes is this idea of factory education and and the war thing of you know you see, he gets the scroll from the the king, but it's printed. You know, it's not there's not even like a signature from the king. Yeah, and the line is His Majesty signed with his own rubber stamp. You know, that's it exactly. Yeah. And, and again, what I was saying earlier, I think this later later part of their career, a lot of the the wall and then the final cut. It's one of those things in a band, if something is too close to one member, you know, the other guys couldn't really relate to that. So I think that's one mm. of the things that drove Roger Waters out of the band. Another theme is like the, the kind of emptiness of the rock star life. And um, I've never been a rock star, but uh, <laughs> but you can see, you know, it, it's almost like a continuation of what he has as a child. Cause, but he kind of wants to be on his own. Like he gets his, okay, gets his groupie back to his room, but he's too catatonic to do anything, you know talk to her do anything else with her you know you get a uh, bob hoskins are you familiar with him like a famous british actor mm, uh, he doesn't mm-hmm. have any lines but he's mm. the manager There's right a, yeah he's, a, he's yeah. an absolute legend in england the long good friday is a film i'd recommend i've seen him in other movies yeah he, he turns up he, he very often i guess he'd play gangsters and stuff he had a great film mm. called mona lisa in the in the 80s uh, he's a real cockney you know he's a authentic mm-hmm. cockney and fortunately like i say he doesn't have any lines in this but you see him mouthing <laughs> lines but you don't hear his voice and then of course we got all the war stuff and like you said roger waters father did die in um i think it was in anzio in italy in fact uh, yeah i think he says that in one of the songs that- he mentions anzio there's a scene in the movie as well actually which where his father dies i think is mm. anzio because you see the dunes there's like dunes and the sea and that's anzio because i know because i i lived near there so i know whereabouts is anzio in in italy it's near rome it's about 40 kilometers from rome on the coast i don't know how how much that is in miles 
25 and there's miles. an American, about 25 miles, yeah. And there's an American um, cemetery there mm-hmm. uh, in Anzio. It's this huge, typically American, you know, with the white crosses. And actually, I, I thought, like in the movie, there's there's some scenes of those, you know, all the crosses. Yes, yes. In the, yeah. in the animation yeah. when the planes turn into crosses. That's it. That kind hey. of reminded me of Anzio as well, that scene. Because when I went to the, the cemetery in Anzio, it's like that kind of all the white crosses everywhere. Yeah, and that, like I say, those lyrics to those songs, you know, when the tigers broke free, I don't know, lyrics which are too literal sometimes don't work, but he just makes it work because I think you can hear. The other thing about Roger Waters' voice, obviously he wasn't the main singer in Pink Floyd, but he sung a lot of The Wall. His voice is not technically great at all, but it, it's it's oh. perfect in its sort of, imperfection you know and the screaming there's lots of screams in this film which are really effective <laughs> again they, yeah. they sound like they're coming from the gut you know and the idea with the war is the idea that of you know there's that lyric about a few hundred ordinary lives just mm-hmm. to take you know i mean I, I was just watching hamburger hill which is about the vietnam war and it's about this famous battle to take a hill and like yeah. yeah great what happens when you've taken the hill and you've lost 300 men oh they gave the hill back to the Viet Cong is that oh yeah that was a that was a waste of time wasn't it and this idea and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with black adder but there's a there's a brilliant joke when they're talking about world war 1 and they said uh, we've gained about as much ground as an asthmatic ant carrying some heavy shopping a very <laughs> black adder joke yeah the the idea of just wasting all these lives to to gain like almost no ground at all you know, there's a lot about obviously the futility of war and things like that. Mm. One thing I did want to get onto a bit of a tangent here, education. So we get this famous scene where Pinky is writing some poetry, which of course brilliantly turns out to be the lyrics for money. Yeah. yeah. You've got the teacher going, uh, a Learjet, new car, caviar. <laughs> the laddie reckons himself a poet. The laddie reckons himself a poet. Oh, and all the other kids are laughing and, uh, when I was watching that, I, I, I was getting some feelings of anger because it's this thing about the school system where they, they it's all left brain, you know, it's all like maths, science, you know, regurgitating information. And what I want to ask you both in turn, because the three of us grew up in very different places or went to school in different places. If you don't mind, uh, Jay Crush, first of all, can you tell us a little bit, just a little bit about your education and, and maybe about did the school you went to encourage creativity or was it? more kind of, you know, left brain education, let's say. What would you say about that? I would say just standard run-of-the-mill public education. You know, out here, I'm in California, so they like to fancy themselves as progressive, quote-unquote. But uh, no, I could say that as far as creativity goes, no. I mean, our school system is to pretty much get, get you through it and get you proficient in some basics and then move you out. You know, we did have music and and we did have drama and you know, different shop classes and stuff like that. And I think some of the new newer high schools now are gearing more towards the arts and some things like that, but you know, the whole system in itself is political. It's like going to any art school or to going, you know, going to any music school. When you go to those institutions, their way is going to be put on you. And I think the British system, 
I mean, you, you know, better than I, of course, but I would assume it's similar, you know, get them in, get them out, you know, back at that time, it was a lot stricter. I mean, they, they just whooped you. I mean, I remember Absolutely. like the principal could take you in and paddle you and you know, all, all that <laughs> stuff. And that really wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Felipe, you went to school in South Africa, which is, I'm really yeah, it was the, Go on. Uh, yeah, it was the same, the same kind of thing. They, We'd get whacked if we stepped out of line and yeah. we had to stand in line waiting for class. You couldn't speak out of turn. And it was in South Africa during apartheid. And it was an all-white school we went to, European. There were people from all over. There were like Greeks, Portuguese, Italians, but no black people. It was Yeah, it was a strict school, but it, it was starting to open up because we had art class. And that's actually when I got inspired to do art oh. i was lucky because I, I had a good art teacher she was into music as well so she was very uh, open-minded but the rest of it was quite quite strict that's probably why i found i could relate to the wall so much and i found it appealing when i was younger because because of the whole loneliness thing and also the the teachers making fun of you in front of the class if you were different or they, they kind of wanted everyone to be the same. We had uniforms as well. Yeah, and we did as well. We, you know, and every Friday we had military day. So we had to dress up in military uniform and march up and wow. down the square. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, really? That's crazy. Every, fri oh, every Friday yeah, we had little military berets. And, shit, uh, I can see why you like the this girls. film then. You relate to this film. Holy shit. Yeah. Sure. And the girls? The, the guys did the military stuff and the girls did, um, what did they do? Oh, they did like, I don't even know what the girls did. Home, <laughs> they did, home uh, ec or something? Home cooking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They did cooking home, and they sewing. Did and, and they did, some of them did drummies. Do you know what drummies are? I think drummies? it's a South African thing. They wear like uniforms and they march and they throw like batons up in the air and catch them and... And they all oh, like cheerleading like, or something like that. Kind of like cheerleading, but yeah. they have uniforms. I think it's a very South African thing. Mm. They wear uniforms and they and they march up and down in sync. Oh, I get it. It was very military orientated. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I went to a grammar school, which is kind of, you know, you have to pass a test to get into it, but it's not like one of the elite schools by any means. But ours was like a rugby school, you know. That's why, you know, they have the oh. rugby posts in this film. Mm. I always clocked that when I watched this film. They were the yeah. same. They were the same. Yeah. It was always like rugby, like, oh, you don't want to play football, you know, soccer. You know, most of us want to play football. It's like, no, nah, you're going to play rugby. We're going to turn you into a man, that kind of thing. We had to play rugby as well because South Africa is big oh, with yeah. rugby because we don't Absolutely. play soccer or mm -hmm. football. So... <laughs> it actually reminds me of you, Anthony, because I was doing piano lessons at the time. And uh, so we were all in the hall and like they were choosing people to play rugby. And I couldn't play because I had piano lessons. <laughs> so it reminds oh, me. I know of, what's coming here. Of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It reminds me of a film uh, of Monty yeah. Python, The Meaning of Life, yeah. where they're all soldiers. And he said, Well, I, actually, I'm learning the piano. Yeah. Learning the piano. <laughs> what, what I'm going to do, actually, guys, when you're listening back to this, when it's been released, I'm going to put that clip in now. That'd be awesome. Okay. Go! 
Corbin! Like you've never seen the hand of God before! Now, today we're going to do marching up and down the square! That is, unless any of you got anything better to do. Well, anyone got anything they'd rather be doing than marching up and down the square? Yes, Atkinson. What would you rather be doing, Atkinson? Well, to be quite honest, Sarge, I'd rather be at home with the wife and kids. Would you now? Yes, Sarge. Right, off you go. Now, everybody else happy with my little plan of marching up and down the square a bit? Sarge? Yes? I've got a book I'd quite like to read. Right, you go read your book then. Now, everybody else quite content to join in with my little scheme of marching up and down the square? Sarge? Yes, Wycliffe, what is it? Well, I'm, uh, learning the piano. Learning the piano? Yes, Sarge. And I suppose you want to go and practice, eh? Marching up and down the square! Not good enough for you, eh? Well... Right, off you go! Oh. Now, what about the rest of you? Rather be at the pictures, I suppose. All right, off you go. Bloody army, I don't know where it's coming to. Right, Sergeant Major marching up and down the square. Left, right. And so that was like, you know, so, all these big rage right, because got bullied for that as well. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember our sports teachers were absolutely brutal. And then when you got to high school, was started like 11, 12 years old. And then by the age of fourteen, fifteen, they they all wanted to be really chummy. Always felt like they were fucking with our heads a bit, you know, like good cop, bad cop. Yeah. But in terms of creativity, that there, there was like a music. They used to call it schoolhouse. It was like a music. Look, literally, looked like a house in our school, but. I started a band or like a duo with a fellow when we were 15 because I started playing the guitar when I was 14 and we tried to book a room. And I always remember this. The music teacher said, well, what exam are you studying for? And I'm like, what? We were like a duo. Like he plays the piano, I play the guitar. Why do we need to study for? <laughs> but it's a funny thing with music <laughs> in that music is a creative thing, but music also has a kind of a mathematical side. I mean, there's a tangent I won't go on now that I mentioned on another podcast of mine. Basically, I met this fellow who played this amazing music, and then I played this kind of bluesy thing that I'd made up that didn't technically sound great. And I was like, God, oh, you're such a good pianist. And he said, yeah, but if you take the music away, I don't know anything. So a lot of people learn music by reading music. You know, they learn how to play Beethoven, but it's not actually a creative thing unless you put your own stamp on it. But it was interesting, like in a lot of schools, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was at school, you had to fight to be creative. You, know, you had to fight to book a room just to play a bit of music for an hour. So it kind of made me angry or I was thinking about it, to be honest, this anti-creativity. But then the other side of that, you know, what would happen if, if it was all right brain activities? You know, you'd end up with a society of artists, you know, which sounds great to us. Yeah. Like, who's going to do all the, you know? <laughs> probably both extremes are not good, probably. Yeah. That's another thing that I think is in the wall you know, the artistic extreme where he he's an artist, but he becomes completely isolated mm. as an artist. Then he goes to the other extreme, which is 
you know, the strict dictatorial state. Yeah. So I think there's also a theme of chaos and order. That's what I've, I felt. That's a good segue. I'm just going to say one more thing about the education. You've got the, the mincing machines and the conveyor belts, you know, and obviously you've got the famous, we'll go to the music in a sec, but you've got the most famous song, Another Brick in the Wall, part two, which is the one that was in the charts at the time. But um, let's segue to the Nazism. I wasn't totally sure exactly what they were saying. I mean, obviously it's something to do with power and control. I mean, it wasn't exactly Nazis, but it was obviously like totalitarian. It was the symbol was a yeah, the double hammer. <laughs> what do you think that was all about in terms of the whatever narrative there is in this film? Anybody? Well, I was going to connect it to the isolation in the education and marriage and him being a rock star. He's floating through these different institutions. I think the main thing that I get from the wall, I mean, we have all these micro themes, but the macro theme to me is society's assault on the individual. Listening to Filippo's experiences in his school and all our experiences, I think mm -hmm. that there's a big social control theme and how the society takes away from that individual and ultimately, if you don't play by the rules of society, you are sequestered and, and isolated. And it's, it's an interesting parallel in the society. We have a, a lot of groups kind of rallying for certain, quote, marginalized groups and, and, and these kind of things. But that's just going to morph into the new totalitarianism at whatever their philosophies are or, 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 or religions that it's just a stripping down of, of the individual and, and, and to the point where the individuals just completely form these, these walls around themselves and, and, and they almost shut down, you know, in the song comfortably numb is kind of the climax uh, of that whole experience when you're young, you're, you, you say shit, you shouldn't because you don't know any better. You don't know any better what the, the, these people want you to say you're free. You go out. I mean, a kid just go, kid will go run right out in the street. And <laughs> they don't know you're not supposed to run out in the street. There's all these things. And then eventually, you know, with the society and as they're moving through the education and, 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 and he has these experiences with these different institutions, ultimately, he's just numb to it all now he's lost that sense of freedom and wonder about the world as he's just been broken down society's going to enforce its will on you and mm -hmm. you're going to bend and it doesn't matter what type of culture or society you're in i mean it mm -hmm. ends up morphing into people trying to control when just the individual wants to be free, you know, the individual expression. Yeah, I agree. You know, the loss of innocence. There's a scene as well where he uh, he's just like freaked out and they find him mm. in his room and he's passed out. And then he kind of starts melting. They take him away and he's like melting. It's like yeah. he was saying, like his innocent self, I've metamorphosis because then he, he rips off that... Uh, 
Yeah, he's like, like he's stripped away his sensitive side or his his vulnerability, and he just becomes a cold dictator. Yeah, and it could be like someone who's just been kicked around the whole time is taking back power. We don't know if it's a fantasy or not. I mean, who the hell knows with this film? You know, anything could yeah. be a fantasy. You know, I didn't, and it didn't really try and make sense of any narrative in this film. I was mm. just loving all the imagery and all the themes and the amazing music. You know. He might be making a link between the this sort of industrial education of all these kids going through the grinder, you know, the midst, mm-hmm. or just to comment on society, you know, because uh, just going back mm-hmm. to education, just for two seconds, me and an old school friend, we actually went back to our old secondary school in about 2012, I think. And that was like 25 years after we left. And I couldn't believe it. There's CCTV all around the school and Whoa. the field where mm-hmm. we used to play rugby has a chain link fence around it. And, of course, we, we asked the deputy head who took us around, and, of course, he had an answer. Oh, there's been some dodgy characters hanging around the school. And I'm like, yeah, all right. There were dodgy characters hanging around the school when I was <laughs> <laughs> Including me, of course. Yeah, I was one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, this whole, you know, we've, we're really going this way. And this is 1982. So, obviously, it's looking back to some sort of Nazi or communism era. But it's mm. coming forward as well to what we got now, this sort of security state. And, oh, just horrible. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's talk about the animation. So you mentioned, yeah, the flowers that kind of turn into genitals and then they turn into demons. And I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. And then you've got hammers dancing and eagles. Uh, can uh, one of you try and make sense of this for me? Or do we need to make sense? Well, I heard um, an interview with, Roger Waters uh, saying that when what's his name Gerald Gerald, Gerald Scott because he did all the animation and uh, when he did that scene you know where the flowers change into genitals yeah. Roger Waters used to tease him saying what's that Gerald what's that yeah. what's that there Gerald but I think it's uh, it's like a relationship and they become monsters but the female wins and then the female flower becomes a dragon. Yeah. And then the dragon changes dragon into a war, a war plane, which is yeah. really interesting because yeah. um, I don't know if Gerald Scoff did it intentionally, but it, it reminds me of um, Carl Jung. It's the female archetype. The female is right. associated with chaos and a dragon, mm. and man is associated with order. So I don't know yeah. if he, he did it consciously or maybe he just tapped into some underlying yeah. archetype i don't know i think gerald scarf said that he he didn't know where it came from i know and we all hmm. do creative stuff you know half of the fun is you don't know where it comes from do you you know you, you learn something about yourself when you actually turn off the noise and turn off the filter and the mind and stop controlling it you know all kinds of crazy stuff can come out right they crash what about the animation mm-hmm. oh I, I love the animation and i i think it it, it still holds up so strong today it works because it's a way of conveying these different feelings or concepts visual art is able to do that and that's the beauty of film i think is is that it gives you you know a visual media medium to process it in your own mind it's just like when two different people look at a piece of art you know physical art it conjures up these things within that individual. One of the things that I noted watching it recently 
was how the art direction, the real life art direction has a palette to it that's somewhat reminiscent of the actual art, the lighting sequences, the dream ambiance of the shots, uh, you know, like you're talking the dunes and the television on the dunes and the sky's kind of weird. And this wasn't like CGI. This was, you know, really detailed in the, in the lighting and the different backdrops. And the, so to me, it made the transition into the animated scenes it flows in that way. Mm, yeah. No, I was thinking of uh, Terry Gilliam as well. I mean, yeah. I don't know, Jay Crush. How familiar are you with Monty Python? Have you, have you seen uh, a little bit? Or? Yeah, I've seen. I've seen. I've seen some Monty Python. Yeah, and I, I know Gilliam, of course. Like, I think of Brazil. Even Twelve Monkeys kind of has that industrial. You, you know, it's sort of this dystopic weirdness yeah. that he can portray with that. Well, I was thinking more the animation for Monty Python because uh, going back to the meaning of life, which uh, Filippo mm-hmm. and I used to watch that, and it's not actually, I don't think, a great film. I think we agreed that, didn't we? There's just some great scenes. And if you remember the Zodiac song where he's talking about mm-hmm. space, there's a bit mm-hmm. again where, where it turns into genitals. And it just reminded me of Gilliam. But I think Gilliam's almost like a more comedic version of what we've got here. Yeah. It does remind me of Gilliam. It's just the idea that you can just do anything, really, you know. And uh, I think to the three of us, all these things kind of make sense. But I can imagine to someone watching this film is maybe expecting something a bit more narrative-driven or something. It might go over their head. But I think maybe the key with this film, not that I'd ever tell anyone how to watch a film, but the key is maybe not to try and follow it too closely and just to revel in the themes, wouldn't you say, and the the imagery. Mm. Mm. Well, to me, like all the films I love the most, it's just personally, are those type of movies that don't totally beat you over the head with what they're trying to say. I mean, I think of mm-hmm. 2001 or, mm-hmm. or something like that, where everybody watches it and they know they just experienced something. You just don't quite understand what it is. That's why it merits those repeated visits and you come back to it every time. And depending on the stage of your life, you'll see different things. And I think that the wall has that just ability. I I was kind of thinking about another film that people didn't understand, but I thought it was just excellent was a tree of life where he's flashing back to to his childhood. And then he's out on a beach somewhere and, Mm -hmm. and, and like, you know, people watched it and they were like, this is garbage. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense, but it's an art open to interpretation. And it, you know, any type of film is an art medium. Yeah. Uh, but then there's art films, you know, yeah, you know yeah. and this is definitely an art film. You've got to get it right. Otherwise, it can come off really pretentious. But I it, well, exactly. And I'm sure this, this is super pretentious to a lot of people. I mean, yeah, probably, some people, you know, watch this and they're like, I mean, I, in fact, I was looking at the uh, Metascore on IMDb. Yeah. It's very low. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but Ebert, of course, Roger Ebert gave it 100. You know, he oh, was like four stars. It's a fucking masterpiece. And then some mm. of the other, you know, the critics were, you know, oh, this is a pretentious load and, and, you know, all the things that you hear about art. I mean, that's just sort of the nature of art. 
Yeah, yep. definitely. Each person interprets it, can interpret it a different way. And like Roger Waters said, the end of the film, you know, the wall comes down and and then there's the kids picking up the block. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I saw one of his interviews saying that he doesn't know what that means, but I have a, have my own interpretation of it. So I think I think sometimes artists do things, they're not even sure what they're doing. It just feels right to do it this way. I don't know why. And then people find meaning in it. So sometimes the artist doesn't even know what they're what they're on about. It's like I was saying earlier, yeah. you know, you learn about yourself by turning off the filter because our minds filter everything and try and control everything. You know, we just can't help it. So, I mean, I get it through meditation, but, you know, you can get the flow state, the famous flow state, you know, by playing the guitar, painting, writing, whatever it is. Filippo, what mm-hmm. was what was your interpretation of kind of the end there? Of the end? Yeah, um, with the kids. The whole thing's about extreme chaos and then extreme order, like out of the mm. chaos kind of. And then it goes back to the beginning. It's like uh, he goes through that whole fascist thing, you know, di- mm. where there's extreme order. Everything is controlled, but you can't have that. It's too extreme. So it explodes. And then mm. the kids come and pick up the pieces and kind of rebuild. It's like a society collapsing like the soviet union collapsed because it was just getting too much or nazi germany and then i don't know the new generation come and build it again yeah that last shot uh what was it a boy picking up uh, what do you call that thing a molotov um, molotov freeze framed on it I, I mean i don't know exactly what that meant but he smells it and and then he empties the bottle oh, he smells it and like he makes a grimace kind of and and then he empties it I think that's like the new generation yeah. rebuilding. All right. So the elephant in the room here is the music, of course. Now, um, we'll get on to the Floyd music in a second. Other than the songs, you do get, as I said, you get a bit of Vera Lynn. You get a lot of triumphal war music, making it all sound so wonderful with all the military marching bands and all that. And then you also get some interesting stuff that would have come out of like a 1940s radio this kind of genteel music. And of course, it's all meant to contrast with the carnage that you see in the trenches. Let's talk about the Floyd music. I mean, I've got a couple of favorite songs. Do you want to just pick a, I mean, I'll go first, actually. I think when we talk about loneliness, I think the Nobody Home song, Mm -hmm. where he talks about the Hendrix perm and the pinhole Mm -hmm. burns. When I pick up the phone, there's nobody. I mean, that is just, you know, I wouldn't recommend that for anyone who's suffering from depression or anything, because that is really... It's the kind of song that can send you over the edge. I mean, like I said earlier, when I was indulging myself in my lonely state, you know, many years ago, I think this song is one of those ones, you know, but it's just amazingly effective. But can we pick like maybe a couple of favorite songs, either as songs or as the way they're used in the film? I think every song has its place. I mean, obviously, Comfortably Numb, I mean, you know, to me, it's just probably you know, one of the greatest masterpieces of a song just in general. But what, you know, what I noticed about the music is how different it is in the film to how it is when you listen to the album. It's almost like an adapted screenplay. The way the music comes off is very somatic. Like you said, a lot of uh, choral kind of arrangements, big band kind of things. But then there's also like just different takes 
that you know aren't on the album itself the fit the physical album they redid the music in these arrangements and stuff in a way that works with the film but when i listen to the album it's like i mean it has a similar impact but it's also more in your face and the album itself is more aggressive to me um, yeah they change it a little bit i think but it's more or less mm-hmm. the songs from the wall i think they had to adapt the film i mean the music to to the yeah, film so and they did it a few years later didn't they well the film the was album, three years after the album but then i don't know whether i'm sure they did a few re-recordings so i don't know yeah the one that really stuck out to me was mother and of course yeah. john lennon did a very good song called mother which is completely different but Obviously, a lot of rock stars have sung about their mothers, you know, these complex relationships. But, you know, he says, mother, do you think she's good enough? And then the final one's like, mother, do you think she'll break my heart? You know, mm. I found pretty hard yeah. myself, you know. Yeah, I think mother was also edited. I think it was yeah. edited longer that they added some violins. Or... I agree with Jay Crash, though, that it's all like, I like all the songs because I think it's like one of those perfect albums that just... Yeah. Every single part is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I prefer the less commercial songs because I've just, because I've heard them less, you know, like yeah. uh, Brick in the Wall Part 2 is over. Yeah. So it's brilliant, but right. I've heard it so many times. Of course. That, that I, I just prefer, and I noticed they don't have uh, Hey You isn't in the film. They cut that out. And then there's another piece that I, I was a bit disappointed when I heard the actual album because I'd seen the film first, that there's a piece that's missing in the album that's just before, I need a dirty woman, just before mm. that. Shall we drive a more powerful car? Yeah, I love that. that. Yeah, I love that part. And it's yeah. not Was that on another album or did they just not end up using it? I don't think it was ever recorded on an album. All right. I don't know. Yeah, and of I... course, like I said, when the Tigers broke free, ended up on the next album, the final cut. I think the final cut came out in 83, so they're probably recording it at this time. Goodbye, Cruel World, I've always found very poignant. Yeah, Another Brick in the Wall, there's three versions. Yeah, the famous one is the second one. I know what you mean. It's been so overplayed. Comfortably Numb is the same. It's obviously a great song, but I think I just heard it when you've heard it 400 times, you know, through your life. I like Another Brick in the Wall Part 1. Yeah, so Uh, do I, yeah. Really good, yeah. Yeah. Where he plays with a plane, he's in church and he's playing with that plane, the toy plane. I like the other one where the other one where he's he's like, you know, I want to go home, take off this uniform Uniform and leave the show. But then in the film, he's like sitting in the corner and he's just muttering it like he's like, I want to go home. Yeah, the security guard hears him though. Oh, is that when he's, singing, when he's in the cubicle singing the lyrics? Is that what you mean? The black security guard hears him. And that's the same guy that's in that, uh, when the prostitutes arrive. Yeah, getting a blowjob. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And he gives, it, he gives her the keys yeah. to, to get in or something. Or the pass. No, he gives yeah, her the pass yeah. to get in. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed now that I heard the album before I saw the film because it'd be interesting the other way around. Like, I think hearing the yeah. album's a very different experience. You'd recognize a lot mm. of the songs, but there's a lot more. You know, they obviously didn't use the whole album because it's it's mm. pretty massive, it's right? Like double yeah. album, isn't it? It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty long. But they did yeah. have a whole live show 
the film ended up mimicking it with this the characters you know like i think in the live version they had these blow up like the blow up schoolmaster and they had like the Mm. blow up mom and i mean he's still he's still touring the wall now isn't he i mean he he just put a new version of mother on uh probably youtube or somewhere i saw that yeah i saw that i haven't watched it it's like got five million views or something yeah it was good but he's still doing the wall i mean he's obviously you know with a new band and stuff or a more recent Mm. band so it's so close to his heart but, you know, uh, Gerald Scoff did uh, another animation for them before the wall for Wish You Were Here. I think he did. Was it? I think it's Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I think he did the video for that. And it's the same, uh, you know, in the wall, there's a figure floating in space and turning around in space. And then yeah. he turns into a leaf and then back into a man. It's the same animation in Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I think it's that song. I wonder if he did the pigs uh, floating in the air. Maybe he didn't, though, for animals. Yeah, I don't know. I'll check that. Just on the subject of Shine on Your Crazy Diamond, it's a bit of a tangent, but have you heard the story of when uh, Sid Barrett, yeah. <laughs> Sid Barrett walked into Abbey Road Studios when they were doing that song? Do you know that story? Mm-mm. I've heard it. I think it's in all the Pink Floyd documentaries. What happened was he left the band around 68, and, you know, he was in a terrible state. But they actually did a combination, not Waters, but a combination of the other. I think it was Rich Wright and David Gilmore helped him with his two solo albums. But basically, they're in Abbey Road, 1975, doing Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. And someone notices, oh, oh, who's that fella? And there's a fellow in the control room who shaved his head, which is where you get the wow. shaving the body. Mm. Wow, okay. He was four or five stone overweight. What would that be in pounds? So he's 70 pounds overweight. And he had a bald head completely hanging around the control room while they were doing this song. And someone said, oh, hang on, who's that guy? And then they finally took, oh, that's Sid Barrett. And of course, they're all shocked. Like Roger and David were apparently in tears, you know. Wow. How weird is that? What a bizarre story. And there's a picture of him as well. And he's just got this huge belly, totally bald head, no eyebrows, just with this vacant you know, black holes in the sun or whatever it was, the lyric. That's where they got the the, the scene where he where he shaves his eyebrows. So, yeah. yeah. Plus the cigarette apparently was Sid Barrett, the cigarette burning. Oh. He used to burn his fingers because he was too and out. Shine on. I don't know if it's true, but shine on you crazy diamond. It's supposed to be S-Y-D. So it's Sid. I read it in the comments. I don't know if it's true, but. Uh, I, think we're in L- hmm. I think we're in LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds territory. <laughs> Could be or might not be. (laughs) The song is definitely about him. I mean, they've definitely never hidden that. Totally about him. And Wish You Were Here, the whole idea, really. I mean, when Sid was a part of the band in the earlier, we talked about the earlier music, Pink Floyd was Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett. But then Pink Floyd, the name almost became a character that they sort of referenced. And they referenced that in... um, in the Wish You Were Here album, I think it's, you know, Have a Cigar, where he's like, oh, the band is really great. But which one's Pink? You know, it's like, pink. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. It, like, I think I remember thinking, oh, is Pink Floyd a person? You right. know, until I really knew it sort of, yeah, morphed into this character almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and a brand, of course, as well. Well, Pink. Yeah, pink well, sure. Comes from two blues singers. I can't remember their names, but one was called Pink. Oh. Was mm. Yeah. 
and Sid Barrett named the band. It's a weird parallel with the Rolling Stones because Brian Jones was obviously the main man in the Rolling Stones and he named that band and eventually got sacked, basically. Sid Barrett uh-huh. survived until 2006, but Roger Waters was asked, you know, did you ever try and get in touch with him? He said, oh, you know, it's not a good idea, you know, but the specter of Sid Barrett's always going to be there. Listen, I'm sure we could go on probably all night well, it's morning for you, isn't it, Jay Crush? But <laughs> evening. All right. Anymore. Yeah, it's it's past noon now. So. Yeah, yeah. Can we just do like final thoughts? I mean, for me, just, yeah, massive recommendation. This film's not going to be for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. some people might call it too stylized, but, you know, for me, I just love it. And go on, final thoughts, uh, Jay Crush? No, I just think it's a brilliant film. To me, I, I just as a Pink Floyd fan or, or even you know, if you're not familiar completely with Pink Floyd, I think that the film and you're into just film as a medium and the art of it, I think you can respect this film, even if you're not, you know, a huge Pink Floyd buff, you know, just like our experiences, you could end up becoming a Pink Floyd fan much larger than you, than you think after seeing the film. Yeah, and of course there's live concerts as well. They did, I'm pretty sure they must have done the whole album, eh? From start to finish, like The Who did with Tommy. I'm sure there's stuff online with concerts. And Filippo, final thoughts? Mm. Yes, the same. I think it's a a brilliant film. I think Mm. it's really a work of art and it it mixes uh, three great artists because you've got musician Roger Waters and Gerald Scarf and... um, Adam yeah. Parker, so three different kind of art forms coming together and just yeah. like three brilliant artists that created this thing. I related to it, like you, we were talking about loneliness earlier, mm. and I think I related to it because I was going through a phase, you know, when you're young and you just mm. feel like you're completely alone and there's a wall between you and society. So I think, yeah, a lot of people can relate, even though, it doesn't have a linear narrative, like you were saying, that a lot of critics didn't like it because it's like all over the place. But oh, it's a great movie. It's a look into a person's psyche, I think, yeah. into the inside of, of your subconscious. Yeah, I suppose what it might be missing, I mean, it'd be nice if there had been perhaps something a bit hopeful about it because it's a little bit bleak. But then again... <laughs> I think it's a quite an uplifting sort of sensory experience. I don't really feel depressed when I watch it. I just, just revel in it really. It's just, it's like a tumble of sprawling images, but it, it makes some yeah. sense to me. I mean, the, I think what's great about it is that we could discuss the themes, you know, forever and we are never going to really agree on anything, but <laughs> there's yeah. enough there that we're, you know, we, we could all talk about it just like art really, <laughs> you know, art well, is like yeah. that. I think Roger Waters wanted, like in the movie, he wanted the actual band to be playing. And then Alan Parker yeah. wanted to to make a movie that wasn't like a, a band playing. It wasn't a concert. Mm. It, was, mm. it was more like a, th- a thing on its own. Oh, I think that's a much better decision, yeah. I yeah, think, I think, I think so. it would ruin it to have a band because then it's kind of got nothing yeah. to do. One thing it does well, actually, just final note, it uh, kind of gives you information that tells you, like, you see one picture of them on their wedding day, him and his wife, and you kind of know that they've been happy at some point. So it kind of does that, and you yeah. know he's a rock star, but you don't actually have to hear him 
playing any music. I mean, okay, Bob Geldof sings at the Nazi rally, but that's not necessarily pink. That might be some sort of fantasy. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. the same guy who's trashing the hotel room. I find it's like different aspects of a personality. You know, you get mm. the Nazi, the, the mm-hmm. crazy rock rocker, the child, the lover, whatever, you know, the drug addict. It's like all these mm. different characters. Yeah. Probably all of us have different characters in, in us. Sure. Yeah. Without the groupies in my case, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. it's another story. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much to both of you for being on the show. Uh, before we go, can you just tell us um, what you've got online? I'll put links in the show notes, but Jay Cash, tell us about your YouTube channel. Ah, just one thing you've got down to in your greatest films, you're down to number 11. So when are we going to get the top 10? I'm actually working on that right now, doing the top 10. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I will be releasing that. But of course, just really busy with music here. Uh, Not only just the music that I post to my channel, but um, also working right now with uh, a different uh, group in a kind of a collaboration type thing. And we've got little songs that are we're going to be releasing soon too. And yeah, just continue to do that on my channel, but probably don't get to the film stuff as much as I would like because I'm so busy um, musically, but yeah, I am getting down to it and we'll have the top 10 up soon. Cool. And your channel is Jake rush in the car. And yes. Uh, Lipa, where's your work online? Have you got some stuff? Yeah, I've got a website and Instagram. Like most, most of my stuff's on Instagram. I can give you the address. and uh, Can you just give us the name of the account and the name of the website, and then I'll put the links anyway. Uh, the website, it's a bit long, too. I'm going to have to give it to you because I I don't remember what it is exactly. All oh, right, yeah, so no long. problem. Yeah. It'll be it's, in the show notes, so no problem. But but my Instagram is Filippo Francocci, my handle. Can yeah. you spell your last name? Yeah, sure. F-R-A-N-C-O. Double C I. Okay. I've got a YouTube channel as well, but oh. uh, I'm still working on it because uh, I'm trying to learn how to mix music and produce yeah. music. So I'm doing some songs, but it's I don't have a lot on my channel yet. But uh, but you've got some songs. You've got. A video. I can give you the. Yeah. What's your YouTube channel? My name is Filter on YouTube. I did a song that's an old song that I used to play with my high school band. And I just, I'm re-recording, re-recording it. So the song is called Executioner and the band is called Brutal Awakening. Awesome. (laughs) And it's very heavy kind of, well, not very heavy, but quite heavy. Channel, yeah, Filter. Filter, yeah, that's my channel. All right. I'm I'm kind of a retired rock star, but I, I'm putting my back catalogue online. <laughs> I just made a playlist. Which I like, by the way. It's good oh, thank some you. good stuff, man. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. We just put a studio playlist. Me and the producer I had in Madrid, we chose the best songs. And I'm putting together a live playlist. So there'd be loads of videos I made. I had a band called The Backfield Plan in Madrid. Awesome. So make a playlist of that. So we've got plenty of that. And um, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank thanks. you. Yeah, I really had Thank a great you. time, guys. Thanks, thanks for, for inviting us. All right, so thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon for more Film Gold. Mm-hmm.